0: A new explanation has emerged for the Defense Department's sudden cancellation of a $374 million program to replace its much-maligned defense travel system. But for members of Congress, the latest rationale raised as many questions as it answered. Enough to warrant a House oversight hearing on that issue. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has been following the travel system replacement saga. He joins me with an update. And Jared, why don't we start with what they said were the first reasons for canceling this program in the first place?
1: Yeah, the the, the original reasons that DOD gave us, gave other members of the media, gave the public were didn't make a lot of sense, frankly. They said the the actual reasons that they canceled this program was one, that travel volume has been significantly lower in the post-COVID-19 era, and therefore there was less of a need for this system. That's a little hard to swallow because what we do know about DOD's actual travel outlays in the post-pandemic era really is only 2022 data, but 2022 was the highest level of travel spending the DOD has had in about a decade with $8.4 billion, so a pretty significant amount. A secondary reason is they just kind of vaguely indicated that they're more focused on auditability now, which also is a little bit questionable because I've never quite heard that introducing a new modern IT system is a problem for auditability. Usually the concern is older systems, legacy systems that were never designed with financial audits in mind, which is, as we know, pretty pervasive throughout DOD.
0: And those reasons didn't sit well with Capitol Hill either, then, you found out.
1: Yeah, that's what it sounds like. So members of the House Oversight Committee requested a briefing with DOD, and at that point they got a completely different explanation from the department, which was... The main problem is that the interfaces between what this new travel system would be, my travel, and DOD's existing legacy financial management systems just were not ready. We're not going to be ready. And so essentially they could not make this largely commercial system work with DOD's financial management infrastructure, which is a slightly more logical explanation. But the, the question it raises for Congress, and one thing that I know that they're really going to look into when this hearing happens next month, is going to be, Okay, guys, you've had more than five years to work on this and and start thinking through how all of that interfacing is going to come to pass. And in fact, a memo from Gil Cisneros, the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, last fall specifically directed all of the military components to start preparing those interfaces. It's unclear how much of that work actually happened. We know it happened to some extent because, of, according to DOD's budget proposal for 2024, basically all of the defense agencies had already migrated from the Defense Travel System to My Travel, and that same budget proposal indicated Military Services would migrate by the end of this year. That's another reason this this change seemed so abrupt, because. In that same memo I mentioned from Gil Nero's last fall, he also directed all of the military services and defense agencies to migrate to this new system by this summer. It was, in effect, mandatory. Up until another memo in May, which basically said, never mind, we're canceling the entire system. So as I said, very abrupt and very unexplained at the time. We have a slightly more plausible explanation now. But as I said, Congress is not completely satisfied with what they've heard so far.
0: Well, that raises a couple of questions. One, you would think that the interfaces to the financial system would be the first thing they would work on when they hired a contractor and then secondly, those that had already migrated to it, do they have to now yank it out and go back to the old system?
1: That's exactly what they have to do. They've been told to cease um, all new bookings in my travel by mid-July and revert back to defense travel system. Again, that would really only affect the defense agencies that have already made the migration, but yes, they will in fact have to do that. And to your Other question, yeah, we do know that to some extent, SAP Concur and their partners had been working on a lot of this interface and preparatory work as part of the sole source contract that they were issued for originally $374 million in September 2021. A lot of that work involved integrating this commercial product with the rather Byzantine Uh, defense travel regulations, and DOD's IT infrastructure. In fact, in the justification and approval that DOD first issued that justified that sole source contract, one of the big reasons that they gave is that SAP Concur had already done all of this work, and if they went out with a full and open competition, some new potential vendor would have to repeat a lot of the work that they had already done. I just can't emphasize how much DOD said the system was essential in that original J&A, Tom. They said any other approach besides doing this sole source contract would set them back years, They described it in fairly urgent terms, needing to move away from the legacy defense travel system um, because of its inefficiencies, its user unfriendliness. And, oh, by the way, we should also point out that a government accountability office report has found that um, even just in the years between 2016 and 2018, DTS alone was responsible for about a billion dollars in improper payments. So yet another reason that that you would want to start moving away from this legacy system. But as of now, they are basically back to ground zero after several years of work.
0: And if you look at the, the electronic health record that the DOD is well into and then take DTS, both of them and many other systems that they would modernize have to interact with their legacy financial systems. And that seems to point to the need to get that Modernized. That's
1: something they've been working on for many years also, right? Yeah, that's right. And this feels to me like a case of, you know, sacrificing a a new system at the altar of the legacy systems because they are so ingrained rather than fixing the problems with the legacy systems, which we know are a huge problem for auditability in the Department of Defense. We know about half of the notices of findings and recommendations that auditors have found throughout the military services and defense agencies are directly related to IT deficiencies in those legacy systems. So I think a lot of people would be a little bit disheartened to see that those legacy systems are the reason we can't modernize some other piece of the IT infrastructure.
0: Yeah, so my travel then is going away totally. And how much have they sunk into it of that $347 million project?
1: That is the good news, if there is any good news here. There's been relatively little spent on this so far. About $23 million is what we know about. That was uh, to design the initial prototype and for the first couple years getting it up and running with those initial test users. So this is not a case where DOD has sunk a billion dollars into a project and then had to cancel it. What they have lost is a lot of time here. I think that's the main issue. Um, but but, but that, that $23 million number may also not be completely inclusive because we don't have any real good documentation of what's been spent on any of that initial interface work. That's just what um, has gone to SAP Concur under this exact contract. And going back to one of your earlier questions, though, you know, comparing this to MHS Genesis, although MHS Genesis certainly had its issues, especially in the early days, one thing that distinguishes my travel and this contracting approach that they took from something like MHS Genesis is it was all negotiated as an other transaction agreement that never went through any kind of far based procurement process. And I don't frankly know the extent to which that may have been in play here. But one would think in a more traditional far part 15 or far part 12 contract, you would have more extensive testing and evaluation of the product, and you would know about some of those interface issues a little bit earlier, or you would you would have the traditional processes in place to make sure that kind of thing was good to go before you made a significant investment of investment of money and time.
0: And the real question then beyond that is if you're going with a commercial product that thousands of corporations use, why an OTA in the first place? It could end up giving OTA a bad name.
1: I think part of this was precisely because DoD felt like they could do a lot better by just implementing a commercial solution and in fact, this was the second attempt at doing something like that. The Defense Digital service earlier also built its own prototype using a largely commercial approach and after that experience, I think there just was a sense that you know an OTA process would be the simplest way to go out and just buy something. Off the shelf and get it prototyped, do do whatever interface work you need to do to, again, make it work with the pretty different defense travel rules that that have to be in place that are different from what commercial companies use. But, yeah, I think speed was also a factor here. There's always been a bit of urgency to try to move away from this defense travel system, which DOD officials have been pointing out for years, is just inadequate to the need and, again, responsible for a lot of improper payments. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu, thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Tom.
0: And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did,
3: as a matter of fact.
2: You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by
3: Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer, And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so, the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring look and life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of look and life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls, reading those articles in look and life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Har's man.
2: Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to
3: that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never, ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite. Taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and
2: bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose by design for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's it's fulfilling, but can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the
3: United States that have come aggressively after me, and